today I'm going to kind of primarily concentrate on the Old Testament reading. And I think this is the first time ever I've preached a sermon from the book of Chronicles. So here goes. If there was ever a season to try something new, it's this one. So we'll give it a shot. Before we begin, let me open us in prayer. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit. And we thank you for the ways that your spirit inspired these texts, the writing of them, John 6 and 2 Corinthians 36. And we ask now that your spirit would enliven our hearts and our minds to see you clearly and to receive from you all that you would have for us this morning. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So just the other week, the television series WandaVision finished on Disney+. I didn't watch it. I'm an adult. I'm a grown man. I put away childish things. So I, I do watch The Mandalorian, though. I knew that was going to lose like half the crowd right off the bat. But okay, WandaVision finished the other week. And I, like I said, I didn't watch it. But with, as with most kind of pop culture, uh, the conclusion of the series had two kind of primary functions. It had to wrap up in a satisfactory way the storyline of the first season, but it also had to kind of like put seeds of curiosity out there in the audience to keep viewers and their wallets coming back for future stories. The finale, as I gather it, was both the completion of something as well as a pointing forward, a continuation of something. Our Old Testament reading from 2 Chronicles functions in much the same way. It's the final passage of this book of Chronicles. It's also the very last text in the Hebrew Bible. It isn't located there for us in the Old Testament, but this would have been the final passage that those living in Jesus' day would have had in their hands, the final moments of Scripture. As such, as that final kind of piece, it has notes of conclusion that we might expect, the end of Israel's story as an independent nation, the end of King David's house as the monarchs of Israel. But it also has notes of continuation. You're like a good season finale, it points us forward. It includes the seeds of something more. And this morning, as we seek to understand this text a little better and to meet Jesus in it, I'd like to consider these notes of conclusion and notes of continuation under three headings. First, a fitting end. Second, the seeds of something new. And third, a king under the influence. So first, a fitting end. During the season of Lent, Anglican churches, along with many other kinds of churches, veil the cross. Normally the cross is out there for everyone to see, but in these weeks, the shape of the cross is obscured. And the idea is, is that the glory of God, the beauty of Jesus, is kept hidden in a way this season until it bursts forth in brilliance on Easter morning. And prior to Easter, we're reminded of the ways Jesus humbly hid his glory in service and death. It's veiled. His presence is veiled in some way. For the chronicler's original audience, the notion of God's presence, the notion of his commitment to his promises and people, was similarly hidden or veiled. It was obscured by the reality of the exile, the long years of suffering and loss. God's presence with his people was rendered unclear. And the chronicler is writing to answer questions that people had of, is God still interested on this side of the exile? 
What do the promises of old to Abraham, Isaac, and David have to do with us today? Is God still committed? Is there a future for us? Questions we can perhaps all relate to in the long Lent of pandemic living. And in responding to these questions, the writer of our text this morning in this passage does a curious thing. They are at pains to make clear that the exile was not an unexpected surprise, a dramatic reversal, an unforeseen twist. Rather, they suggest that this was the clear and fitting conclusion to the story thus far, the clear and fitting conclusion to the sin of God's people, to their unfaithfulness, their following after the practices of the nations around them, their pollution of God's temple. There's a very clear kind of arithmetic to the passage this morning. The people of God reject Yahweh's compassionate kingship, and they're given over to Nebuchadnezzar, a pitiless king, a tyrant in every sense of the word. There's the desecration, the pollution of God's temple, and then its destruction, this fitting response. There's this concept in storytelling called Chekhov's gun. Some of you will know this. But the playwright Anton Chekhov once wrote that if in the first act you have a pistol or a gun hung on a wall, say, then in the following acts, in the third, fourth, or fifth act of the story, that gun must go off. It has to be used for there to be a satisfying conclusion, a dramatic kind of conclusion to the story. Well, the writer of Chronicles is saying the exile is functioning like Chekhov's gun. It's been around, and in order for there to be a dramatic, satisfying conclusion to this story, God's forbidding conclusion must come complete. The idea of the exile is not this novel, new introduction in the story. It's there from the very beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden, choosing against God's word, expelled, no longer in the presence of God. It's there in the words of Abraham, choose this day life and death, between life and death, choose life, choose blessing. The words of Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. The idea is, is that the exile is not this capricious event uh, introduced by God at random, but it is this long-standing, awaited conclusion to the story. To build on a point that Father Nick mentioned last week, it's the fitting conclusion to choosing what is not, what is not best for us. Wilderness, separation, exile. And notice in our reading that this isn't portrayed as a sudden thing. It, it's laid out as the end of this long and deliberately chosen path. Again and again, messengers are sent Again and again, God's compassion holds out until there's no more delay, the writer says, no more remedy. The wrath of God is aroused. The curtain falls, exile, finale. The only place this story could conclude, a fitting end. What might all this mean for us? This is not a particularly happy application, but I see in this text As uncomfortable as it might be, an invitation to us to identify ourselves with the people of God in their unfaithfulness, to identify ourselves with those on the path toward exile. 
When we hear about things like detestable practices and despising God's word, that can be hard to identify with, kind of alienating. But the idea here in such kind of phrases, I think, is that Israel in this time was in such a state that the idea of following God in light of the nations around them, in light of their society, struck them as impossible, insane. What God commanded was beyond their imagination. Faithfulness to what he commanded was beyond their social imaginary, to use a phrase that sociologists have coined. And I think that's something perhaps that we can identify with. When we're confronted with the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the commands of uh, ethical parts of Paul's letters, the question strikes us, how could I live this out in my life? I lack the imagination, the, the conceptual categories for how this is the good life. When we speak of sin, we often discuss this reality in terms of our brokenness, our frailty. I do this. This language can be appropriate. But we say we're incomplete or in progress. We're not all that we should be or desire to be. But the picture here in Chronicles and in much of Scripture is of something deeper and more pernicious, more active, a choosing against the way of life. An inability to recognize the way of life for the good that it is. A choosing against life with God. The exile is not the end result of an honest mistake, inadvertent. Or of a well-meaning but broken, faulty intention. Not a lack of maturity or growth. It is the result of active and sustained choosing. A deliberate choice in which there was ample warning and call to correction. In emphasizing this for us, the chronicler is making a point the Apostle Paul makes. You and I are without excuse. The reality of exile, of alienation from God, is not this accidental, unforeseen thing. It's the expected, predictable conclusion of this path. Sin terminates in separation from God. Justo Gonzalez, the Cuban theologian in his book, Manana, Christian Theology from a Hispanic Perspective, describes what he calls a non-innocent reading of reality. He suggests that we are, depending on our socioeconomic location, prone to read reality, read history, with ourselves as either the victim or the hero, the one who wins or the one who suffers. But in this very memorable phrase, he kind of borrows this old Latino proverb and says, we are all thieves, every one of us, victim or hero. We are each of us complicit in the brokenness of the world, in sin. This is why we'll sing in a few moments the prayer of humble access at communion. We do not presume we'll sing because we cannot. I don't have a leg to stand on. I am not saying this morning that every wilderness experience is a result of our own sin. I'm certainly not saying that every experience of suffering is deserved. But what I am saying, and what the Christian story claims, is that there is this fundamental, universal human experience of alienation, separation from God, of being in the wilderness of our own choosing. That's the result of deliberate, sustained pattern. And this exile is the fitting end to a universal human pattern. A grim, 
but fitting conclusion. A tragedy. And if the story ended there, it would simply be a tragedy. But there are also here in 2 Chronicles 36, the seeds of something more. The seeds of a new beginning, of a future, better. March 11th this week marked the 10-year anniversary of the earthquake and tsunami that triggered the meltdown of the nuclear reactor in Fukushima, Japan. I was reading about the anniversary this week, and I was struck by how many in Japan, leaders and experts, politicians, while both mourning this tragedy, the tragedy of the destruction in this moment, the lives lost, the weaknesses it exposed, I was struck by how, while also saying that, many voices also saw the transformative potential of this moment, out of which a better future for the country has begun to emerge. Out of the ashes, out of destruction, the seeds of something more. Notice the result of the exile described in Chronicles. It's in verse 21. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest, and all the time of its desolation it rested, until the 70 years were completed. This idea, a curious one, of the land itself getting some rest, the earth experiencing Sabbath, comes from Leviticus chapters 25 and 26, where God instructs his people in how to keep the Sabbath and promises that he will keep the Sabbath if they do not. And more than just rest, the Sabbath there is described as this mechanism of justice, of goodness in the world. A Sabbath year was when captives were released or debts forgiven. It's the means by which the relationship between the people and their land was preserved. The land would lie fallow. The Sabbath checked greed and restrained inequality. It allowed for restoration as people depended upon God and lived within their creaturely limits. A way we might think of Sabbath is as a reset button. The Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee, the moment when God presses reset, like you did on your old Nintendo, right? A fresh start, a new beginning. And it's this reset by which the normal course of events in a sinful or broken world is arrested, that there might be something new and different and better. And the idea here is that the exile, in people's unfaithfulness, in light of their stubborn refusal to live as God called them to, is this great reset, this great resetting of Israel's life. But the very idea of a reset suggests that something follows, right? You reset the thing so you can start again. It suggests that God's intention in the exile is not permanent exclusion, permanent separation. It's for the purpose of restoration, It's a step towards God's good and intended future. There is a future, the chronicler is saying. God's hand and presence, veiled as they may be, are there, moving in the background, bringing about restoration and life, a new beginning. There's a future in God's purposes. In the language of TV, the story is to be continued. Separation and exile are not the season finale. A few years ago, when our children were a bit younger, 
This is very stereotypical. My wife was reading earnestly a book about child rearing and discipline and then telling me about all the good things that she was reading. I can't remember the exact title if this was the title or the subtitle, but this book had in it the title, the phrase, Discipline Without Distress. And I remember a friend, a fellow parent, was over one day and saw the title and just sighed and said, is that even possible? (laughs) The very notion of discipline is distressing for us. Yet discipline at its best is an expression of love. And it's a reflection of commitment and investment in the future, in who the individual disciplined might become. At its best, it suggests, suggests continued relationship being with and for. And that is how the Bible depicts God's discipline. The writer of Hebrews in chapters 12, chapter 12 quotes Proverbs and declares God disciplines the one he loves. And goes on to say disciplines, God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his goodness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, no kidding. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. This is the lens by which our passage invites us to see the exile as God's fitting response to unfaithfulness, but also as a means by which God's good purposes are being realized. In that fitting end, there's the seeds of a new and better future by God's grace. The exile, the writer is saying, is not God's abandonment, but the outworking of his promises and commitment. And in it are seeds of restoration and renewal. What our passage suggests is that through all the warp and woof, the changes and chances of life, God's compassion, his capacity to care and rule all things, continue uninterrupted. The last words the people living in Jesus' time had in their hands contained this grim, fitting ending but also had in them the seeds of hope, hope of God's continued care, the hope of a new beginning. And the hint, the seeds of that future are seen most clearly in our passage, in this king who is under the influence. The writer says, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. Cyrus is this completely confounding figure in scripture. He's a foreign king, By any stretch of the imagination, we would consider him a dictator, a tyrant, someone we would not want to live under. Yet he's also celebrated in the passages of Scripture in a remarkable way. The language of Messiah is used to describe him. And here, the writer says his heart was stirred up to favor and grace the people of God. With him, there's the beginnings of restoration, return, the future coming to completion. He's a king under the influence of Yahweh, playing this pivotal role. The best way to understand Cyrus is the final figure mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. As a king under the influence of Yahweh is as a precursor, foreshadowing for us Jesus. The king who is not simply stirred up for a moment, for one gracious decision, and to whom the kingdoms of the earth are not given only for a season. Jesus, described for us in chapter 6, is the embodiment of God's continued compassion, the continuation of God's care. 
In our gospel reading, we see Jesus as the full and final expression of God's faithful and gracious commitment. Notice at the end of John chapter 6, at the end of our reading, the people come to make him king by force. That's misdirected, but it is the correct impulse. And what do we find Jesus doing in our reading? We find him providing, providing for a people in the wilderness, far from any provision, cut off, providing for them just as Yahweh did in the wilderness out of Egypt. And as he goes on to describe in John chapter 6, providing for them out of his very body, the bread of life, leading people out of exile into God's gracious future. For us, separation, exile from the God of life is a fitting end. Expect it. But in Jesus, the story takes a good and gracious twist. And God's future opens up for us. King Jesus leads us into spacious places. He is the Lord God with us that the final words of 2 Chronicles promised. He leads us into the unveiled presence of God's glory, into the fullness of his presence. As we put 2 Chronicles and John chapter 6 together, I think there are two paths set before us today. There's the path of the people of God in Chronicles, a continued choosing against the way of life and a climatization to the world around us, the way of the nations, to life apart from God, where the possibility of God's word seems impossible. There's that path. But as Sarah described, we also have the example of this boy in John chapter 6, another possibility. This child who does not, in his own way, despise the word of God, whose imagination for what is possible with King Jesus has not been narrowed or blinkered. And so rather than grasping or holding tight to the little he has, gives of what he has. With Mary, the mother of Jesus, he declares, may it be to me and what I have according to your word. And he trusts in God's gracious future and experiences the abundance that only Jesus can provide. Twelve basketful, enough for all the people of God. This is the path for us to take. Wherever we are, whoever we are, however far down that path with the fitting end of exile, or for however long we've considered ourselves walking with Jesus, today, this week, to offer up ourselves and all that we have, little or great, to God's gracious King, the Lord Jesus. Not shrinking back, not grasping for ourselves, but in sure hope and certain expectation that in Jesus there is a new beginning, a future. In Him, God's story of compassion and care poured out in all creation continues. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.